Hello and welcome to the Meme Stream, the podcast following meme students, present and past, on their adaptive walk of life as they embark on a career in evolutionary biology. The Meme is a master's program that enables upcoming evolutionary biologists from all over the globe to study and research in Europe. This podcast will travel all over Europe and the world, leaping, as Richard Dawkins says, from brain to brain, meme to meme, telling tales of our scientific ventures and research projects. I'm Kate Garland, one of your traveling hosts and creator of the Meme Stream, coming to you from Boston, USA, and this is episode six. This episode is brought to you by the great Hilda Schneeman, who interviewed Yelena Rajkov at the Joint Evolutionary Biology Conference in Montpellier. They talk about Yelena's meme project on the evolution of polypoidy in sturgeons. Now over to Hilda and Yelena. Hello everyone, this is the Meme Stream and I'm Hilda uh, here in Montpellier. And today I'm going to talk to Helena Reitka, um, who graduated from the Meme program in 2013. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> okay, so uh, Helena, do you want to uh, tell us about what your meme journey looked like? Where did you start? Where did you end? Yeah, sure. I started the program at the University of Groningen and I was there for one semester and then I moved to the University of Montpellier and I liked it so much that I stayed for another semester working on a different project and for the last semester I went to the to Uppsala University. Nice, sounds like quite a journey. Today do you want to talk about one of the projects that you did at Uppsala or in uh, Montpellier? In Montpellier, yes. Okay. Uh, so it was the project that I did in the second semester at the University of Montpellier and the one that lasted for six months. And I did it at the um, ISEM, Institute of Evolutionary Sciences in Montpellier, in the Fish Evolution Group with uh, Dr. Patrick Berabi, a CNRS research director who retired this year. Okay. And so what was the project about? The project was about functional diploidization in sturgeons. What does I that mean? mean? <laughs> what are sturgeons and what is functional diploidization? So, sturgeons are uh, a group of a very old group of fish that lived at the time of dinosaurs and that are grow to huge dimensions and are to humans mostly interesting as uh, caviar producers. So we, okay. we eat their eggs and that's why they are, many of them are critically endangered mm. and they're very interesting animals to study from many different aspects. And functional diploidization is a very interesting uh, process in genome evolution that we don't really quite understand yet. And it is a process by which um, a genome after a polyploidization event, so once a species becomes tetraploid, for example, from a, a diploid uh, ancestor, so the, the genome basically duplifies. Yeah, so uh, it's about the number of chromosomes, right? So exactly. normally when you have a diploid genome there's two copies of each chromosome and then when you have polyploidy you have more copies you have two. more copies you okay. have uh, in this case if we have a tetraploid we have four copies but uh, what this process is actually about is what happens once you you have this tetraploid and then it goes back in a way to the original state so some parts of the genome start becoming functionally diploid again and this doesn't happen in, in many groups and sturgeons are one of the only groups of animals where this process was detected but we still really know very little about how exactly that works and I was trying to, to understand yeah. what actually happens there. So does it mean that the extra chromosomes get a new function or they just disappear uh, some of them? Or? The, there are different theories and what is actually most likely is that 
different things happen with different parts. So some genes actually get then multiple copies and that can uh, then get different functions. But uh, what also happens in some parts where this uh, functional diploidization can happen that they again start behaving really like like if they are so-called disomic, uh, meaning diploid. But uh, for example, I was looking actually at the microsatellite loci. So those that, that behave like diploid really look like, if you would just look at those parts of the genomes, you would think that this species is a diploid and not a tetraploid. Uh -huh. And why we were actually interested in, in this in the beginning was because we wanted to, to look at what is happening in the lower Danube Delta, where there are several sturgeon species currently present, but very endangered. And because the, the habitat is reduced, they all spawn in the same area and there is likely a lot of hybridization. There are also many uh, fish farms around where there are non-native species like Siberian sturgeon that often mm -hmm. escape to the Danube. And um, people who live there mostly in Romania were trying to detect these uh, introduction events and possible hybridization. But the problem was that um, so these species actually have different ploidy levels. And then the, in an ideal case, you would find these disomic markers that can then be used to study all of them kind of at the same level. So what happens when you have the hybridization between this kind of species and another one? Uh, that's also... Uh, one of the, the interesting things during the um, whole evolution of this group is that we think that also what happens sometimes is the diploid and tetraploid uh, species did hybridize and that gave rise to some triploid or hexaploid species that there yeah. were many hybridization events in the past but don't really completely understand it. And uh, for, at the time when I was working on this project, the hybrids were mostly just described based on morphology because the genetic markers were not well developed and that's why we were interested in this topic. So that was the basic idea in the beginning and we, uh, we sequenced uh, parts of the, the genome of um, one species of tetraploid sturgeons from the lower Danube uh, with the aim to try to find these parts of the genome that behave like diploid and to use them for basically conservation genetics. Mm -hmm. So how do you do that? Uh, well, I got, when I started the, the project, I got many newly developed microsatellite markers that I was then testing in the lab and trying to optimize the PCR conditions and testing them on a um, set of um, DNA of different uh, sturgeon species that I first extracted. And yeah, that took quite some time to first make it work and then Actually, we were kind of surprised with the result because we expected that the diploidization rate would be relatively similar to what was previously found in some North American sturgeon species, where it was relatively high, around 20 or 30 percent. But so here, 20 or 30 percent of the of the we we speak about the microsatellites. In this case, we can't really say that's the, okay. the true for the the whole genome. Uh, was actually deployed, yes, in this okay. North American species. So we thought that if we screen, for example, 100 markers, that we will find 20 that will behave like yes. deployed. But that was not the case. And I screened hundreds and hundreds of, of markers and we found a very low number, not, not enough uh, to actually use them for the purpose we wanted to use them for. So, so was it because of the markers that you used? No, we, we think that actually the, the depolicization rate in this group is, is much lower. And then I, because you know how it works in this program, we only have six months for a thesis. I had to come up with, with something else, <laughs> like develop a project in a new direction. And then I, I realized that there was a, there was a Chinese um, lab technician in working in the group who actually did her PhD in China on 
uh, some nowadays very endangered species of sturgeon from the Pacific. And we had a lot of samples from those species in the lab that she was not using anymore. And I realized that we actually have a very precious sample collection because some of those species from the rivers in Asia are almost extinct in the wild nowadays. And then I became very interested in this uh, diploidization uh, more from an evolutionary perspective. And I, I decided to actually look at all these different species and use these new markers, but also some that were already uh, developed before by different people and look at the level of diploidization in, in several different groups, so across the whole sturgeon yeah. phylogeny. And then we, we saw that uh, the diploidization level in this whole clade from the Danube was much lower than in the ones from Pacific that were investigated before. And we could also see that unlike what was proposed before, uh, there was actually a more parsimonious explanation for the sturgeon phylogeny and the levels of polyploidy where people earlier proposed that there were up to six uh, polyploidization events in the past because that was the way to explain that in some species there is even octaploids for example but um, with with the study that i did we could show that most likely explanation was actually just three events and not six okay so just to be clear like how can you detect this diploidization from the, the genetic markers like you, what do you look at and you you look at if you use a specific, for example, primers to amplify a one specific microsatellite region. Uh, in a diploid, you, in case it's a heterozygote, you would expect two different peaks or two different bands in a PCR gel, or one if it's a homozygote. But if a species is tetraploid and not diploid, then if it's a full heterozygote, you get four different peaks or four different bands. And based on on these amplification results, you can you can okay. say whether a specific locus is disomic or tetrasomic. Okay. So I basically had to screen a lot of samples with a lot of different markers and, and then look at the patterns using uh, yeah PCR and making yeah. gels in the lab. And with these markers, you could even say something about like the these polyploidization events that happened like long in the past. Yeah, I mean we could say uh, where at what stages these species are nowadays and. And that way we could infer something something about the past as well. Yeah. Very cool. And what like what why did you choose this project initially? Why were you interested in it? I was always interested in aquatic organisms and fish in, in particular. And I already worked in this lab before and uh, the project in the semester before where I worked on trout hybridization. And then I, I wanted to do something similar and there was actually this project was kind of starting in the lab and a PhD student from Romania was supposed to work on it, but then that didn't work from administrative side. She didn't get the visa or something like that. And then I was like, ah, oh, that sounds so interesting. I would really love to do that. And it was just the perfect timing. And so you just jumped on it. Yes, I started reading a lot about them and, uh, and I actually found the topic really interesting. Nice. And how far along in your research were you when you decided to sort of switch the focus? Mm, I don't remember exactly, but it was quite far, maybe even half, uh, wow. half along. So yeah, within yeah. six months, you sort of still <laughs> yes. managed to... Uh... I think that actually happened in every, maybe not in the short one, but also in my second project. Uh, I think that was one of the most important things I learned during the master's, that you have to be very flexible with. You often design a project with one idea in your mind, and then you, as we know from discoveries of antibiotics and many other 
stories in science sometimes you discover not what you were planning to discover but something completely different and i think it's important to not lose your motivation and yeah. even when things are not going as expected because sometimes that may be even more interesting than yeah. when everything is going as planned so you have to be open to surprise yes sort of the general advice <laughs> okay what was your task during the project uh, i started with first gathering all the samples and taking small fin clips from fish and extracting DNA in the lab and that was actually the first time I learned how to do all these things and then uh, optimizing the, the conditions for these newly developed markers so doing a lot of PCRs and making a lot of gels and scoring them so I spent really a lot of time in the lab and then mostly reading and writing and yeah. doing the analysis and so you had only the fins you didn't have like the whole no, fish I in the lab no I didn't have the whole uh -huh. fish and I I didn't have that field part but I don't think that would have been doable in a six month yeah. project because they are really huge and mostly the samples came from the collaborators from the countries where they actually occur so Collected, yeah so what do you think was the impact of your research do you think it had implications for other researchers or did you publish it in the end uh yeah we i wrote a paper about basically what i wrote in the thesis as well about functional depletization in sturgeon and where we also published these new markers that then i think many people used to that what i could see mostly from the site uh, studies that were citing the paper and actually still are some are coming like these days where they they use these markers in many different species so i think that was one of the most important implications that we provided a new resource for for sturgeon genetics in general. Yeah. So, and what did you do in Montpellier when you were not in the lab working <laughs> on sturgeon? Oh, I really enjoyed the, the city. I enjoyed living in France. And I, I every weekend went to the, the farmer's market at Les Axeaux, usually in the morning. And then I would cycle to the sea and enjoy the beach and hang out with other memes. And we actually met also a lot of other local people here and went out read books and I, I lived in a very nice residence called Boutonnet that has its own huge park so I like to chill in the grass and read a book and sounds fantastic I had a really nice time here cool and what have you been doing after meme uh, after meme I, I first took some time off and at the moment when I actually finished I thought that a PhD is the last thing I want to do in my life but I think I feel a bit always like that when I'm in academia for some time I feel like that's a very intense experience and then I, I need a few months sometimes and sometimes a bit longer of doing something very different and then I start missing being a scientist again so I was for a while working for a production company that makes um, nature documentaries and I was writing scripts for um, documentaries about underwater life oh. and uh, life on coral reefs and that was that was a fun experience as well and then after uh, I you still stick with the fish <laughs> yeah <laughs> not sick of the a, fish yet <laughs> i have a passion for for underwater life in general i i used to before i really became a, a scientist i i used to spend a lot of time diving and I thought that that's actually what I want to, to do as a career, to be a diving instructor. But, and after doing that for a while, I started a PhD at the University of Basel in Switzerland, uh, working on uh, adaptive radiation in cichlids, actually studying the uh, role of ecology and phenotypic plasticity in um, adaptive divergence of one generalist cichlid species that lives both in lake and river in habitats. I defended the, my PhD in, in June this year. 
Wow, congratulations. <laughs> okay, so maybe one final question. Um, do you remember the first time that you thought about evolution? <laughs> I'm not sure. I remember the very moment when I really, really thought about it. I, I always loved biology and my brother is a biologist as well. And since we were really small kids, my mom would make us spend all of our time outside and we were always playing with, with insects and flowers. And so I always thought about that. I didn't really know exactly how it's defined. But, but I think when I really started thinking about it a lot and I realized that that's my favorite field in biology was during my bachelor's where evolutionary biology course was my really favorite course during the whole bachelor. All right. Well, thank you so much. Finally, where can we like read more about what you're doing, what you're up to? You can find our current work on the page of the lab, which is salzburgerlab.org. And you can find me as one of the members of the team where I'm currently doing a postdoc. Uh, you can also read more about uh, my research on my ResearchGate profile and on my Twitter account, Jelena Reichel. Okay, thank you. And thank you to everyone listening and joining us on our sixth episode, An Incredible Voyage of the Meme Stream. Remember, you can read up more about Jelena's work on the Meme Stream blog and ask any questions about what you've heard there. The Meme Stream is brought to you by the Erasmus Mundus Master's Program in Evolutionary Biology. Special thanks to the Meme Stream team and all their hard work and dedication to the project. Our intro music is written by the artist Magella, and the little ditty in the end was found in the depths of the internet by YouTuber Sunil Singh. You can follow the Meme Stream on SoundCloud to listen to new episodes, and please remember to rate and share our podcast to help us adapt and evolve. Yeah, it's evolution. Yeah, it's Darwin's revolution. And it teaches us the history of life. Yeah, of life. It's evolution.